Alrighty, everybody, welcome back. We've got another episode of the Basin Breakdown for you. This one, actually from last year, the end of 2020, December. A lot of the news, a little bit slower, but we've got plenty of good stories for you, as always. Myself, Tavis, joined by the amazing co-host, the illustrious Kevin Olson. Oh, you're making me blush. <laughs> and uh, without further ado, we'll just jump right into it. All right, Kevin, you care to kick it off in the DJ Niobrera Peons Basins? Absolutely. We're going to start with some... Liberty Schlumberger acquisition news. So, as we all know, Liberty has come out of a deal with Schlumberger, leaving them responsible for Schlumberger's one-stem hydraulic fracturing business. The deal was finalized on December 31st of 2020. This fleet of high-pressure pumping units existed across North America and covered operations from pump-down perforating to frac sand supply. While Liberty now has one stint, Schlumberger has earned a 37% equity interest in Liberty and placed two representatives on the board. In the past, Schlumberger has been accused of frivolous spending, so this could be a way for the company to recover some cash. For Liberty, this deal means more than doubling their frac fleet and establishes the groundwork for potential to incorporate their environmentally conscious ESG frac process to operations across Colorado. This includes practices such as replacing diesel fuel with natural gas when possible and generating 50% of the fleet's horsepower through low emission means. I don't know. This seems like a pretty safe bet for Schlumberger especially because, I mean, with that ESG frac process, that opens up a lot of opportunities and maybe means of investment for people who are a bit skittish to get into conventional energy means. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, we've talked about this plenty of times before. Look at Proposition 181, 112. I mean, all these practices are trying to limit oil and gas practices in Colorado, mostly for environmental reasons. So if we can incorporate a large frack fleet here in Colorado that's more focused on the environment, hey, maybe even people in Boulder will be happy. Hey, maybe. And that's where we need it, especially because, as you can see, our next story actually goes back to Boulder suppressing some more activity or attempting to. As oil and gas activity has decreased amidst the demand destruction of COVID, it was a great time for many agencies to reevaluate their policies. While you would definitely expect organizations like the COGCC to be responsible for changes like this, Boulder County has been making sweeping changes to their own regulations as well. As of mid-December, there's been a disagreement over the 2,000 to 2,500 foot regulations that were introduced at the start of the month, along with additional regulations that would allow multiple opportunities for any public entity to provide their input. One of the three Boulder County commissioners said that these rules, quote, are the strongest rules in the state and will be a model for others, end quote. On top of this, a moratorium will continue through the end of the year in order to ensure, quote, any new applications to drill can be reviewed under the most protective updated regulations that are ultimately adopted, end quote. Colorado Oil and Gas Association CEO Dan Haley expressed his concerns at communities attempting to outright ban any activity through regulations that eventually become too convoluted uneconomic and time-consuming. As he puts it, quote, the latest setback is based more on politics and science. The data shows a 500-foot setback is protective of public health. The measurements and toxicology reports that we saw during the mission change rulemaking made that clear, end quote. If things continue to progress like this, it is likely that Boulder will be able to ban any activity within their jurisdiction. And the thing that I like most about this story is that quote that you had from Dan Haley, the latest setback is based more on politics than science. And I mean, we've talked about this before that the COGCC is becoming more um, political than, you know, promoting oil and gas in the state, which is what they were designed for. So we are doing our best in Colorado to set limits on oil and gas exploration for, you know, the public, the environment, the health and safety of individuals. And he says that a 500 foot setback 
that covers these bases. There's no science behind this. You don't need this level. It's entirely political that you're just trying to get oil and gas out of your county. Yeah, and it really seems like, from the outside looking in and from our biases, a soft ban, especially with the moratorium that bans any activities through the end of the year so they can fully you know, review everything to the strictest standards. And I think <laughs> that moratorium really is to just dissuade people from trying to enter the county it's like oh if it's going to be a whole year let's just focus elsewhere and then where it'll be easier to develop yeah and even beyond that you know if they if they push it further and further out people are just going to give up you know even if in five years like all right you know come on back there's only a two thousand foot limit and people (laughs) just no no i'm I'm just going to go to weld county (laughs) and speaking of permitting process our last story has to deal with colorado revamping its permit process So new permitting rules are to be implemented in January, and they were announced back in December of 2020, and over 200 people called into the COGCC Zoom meeting to see which of their 5,000 permits would survive the regulatory changes. 4,300 of them were for new wells, and 740 for the location of well sites. Any that don't meet the new regulations will have to be redone appropriately before stepping back to the end of the queue. Some of these applications are a result of panic from Proposition 112 and have not been addressed since the ballot measure was voted down. Either way, the process has certainly gotten slower since. In 2019, over 2,000 well permits were approved. In 2020, there were barely 1,400. Many people have attempted to be proactive in planning for these potential changes, but it still remains a tough task for operators statewide. Well, it seems like this is just sluggish bureaucracy at work. I do feel for the COGCC because they have had a huge backlog and they've even said, hey, please work with us. We've got a new administration. We're trying to implement these new things and they still have permits that were applied, like they said, from the panic of Proposition 112 that, well, it wasn't voted through. So people don't know if they still want those because it was an ill-placed panic. So hopefully this speeds up the process. It's mostly online now. But I think this will eventually be good for industry. What I do wonder is if those individuals that kind of panic applied for those permits back when Proposition 112 was had the possibility of going through. I wonder if they can jump back in there and remove those permits. Or at least I hope that companies are proactive in the sense that if they realize that, okay, I'm at the end of a of a 5,000 permit queue, but I've got you know, 80 of these earlier in the queue that I don't really need anymore. I hope they realize that, okay, if I pull these back out, it's going to get to those new permits a lot faster. So kind of like you said, sympathizing with the COGC, really hoping that companies in the state of Colorado can work with them kind of hand in hand to get this process ironed out and get these permits approved. But that's all we've got for the Colorado area. We're going to next walk it over to the Powder River Basin where Wyoming is actually taking a page out of other states' books, and they will start allocating CARES money to oil and gas projects as well. So the BLM issued a decision allowing the development of 5,000 new wells in Converse County. During the press release, the BLM predicted 8,000 jobs would be created and, in turn, generate $18 to $28 billion in federal revenue. The governor, senators, and state reps all praised the decision for its potential contribution to growth, wealth, jobs, and environmentally friendly development. The project will be financed at the front end with CARES Act money that had to be used before the end of December. And the benefits of this project are projected to extend far into 2021. Hell yeah. I love this. Jobs, money, what's not to like? Exactly. And we talked about this, I believe it was last month with North Dakota when they were using their CARES money to pour back into. And and that's the thing. They're not just pouring it into the oil and gas industry. Yes, That's where the money is going, but they're pouring it into the local economy. 
they're creating jobs. Boom. That's going to boost your economy. It's going to get people off unemployment. It's going to get people back to working. And it's going to generate billions of dollars in federal revenue. That's going to go towards taxes. That's going to go towards schools. It's going to go. I mean, like you said, all around, I just, I love this idea of using the, these funds that are available, that it's up to you what to use them for, helping an industry that's really struggling that supports your state. And I mean, December is past now, and we did see plenty of states make use of it in this way. So hopefully lots of jobs coming back to the people. Next up, we've got an electric tax in Wyoming. Wyoming lawmakers were scrambling to find new sources of revenue to compensate for the losses caused by COVID. Two bills were proposed, the first of which would double the wind generation tax, raising it to $2 per megawatt hour and remove the three-year tax-free grace period. The second bill would increase the taxes on all electricity produced in Wyoming. Many responded to this bill by raising concerns over inevitable cost hikes for consumers and the deterrent of renewable energy investments in the state. Those who supported the tax increases claimed that the state doesn't charge enough for developers, supporting their claims with compromised views of Wyoming and harmed tourism. This is the 14th time the topic of increased taxation on wind energy has been brought up by the Joint Revenue Committee. Although both bills were voted down, the Joint Committee on Corporations did send a bill to next year's session that would eliminate the three-year tax-free grace period that is currently available to new wind energy projects. 14 times brought up and they still send a bill to the next session? I mean, is it time at this point that they actually go after it? I, I, that's a great question, Tavis. It just seems like you're delaying the... You're just pushing the ball down the road. Either pass it or get rid of it. I mean, 14 times and, hey, maybe next year we'll deal with this. <laughs> to me, it just... I love Wyoming. I love what they're doing. But this, to me, is just a little bit silly. Kevin, you know what one of my favorite parts of the Basin Breakdown podcast is? I have no idea. Continuity, baby. We build off of stories that we visited before and revisit so that you can see how all of these energy landscapes evolve. I mean, hell, a lot of our content does that. Kevin even writes periodicals and follows up on his predictions and tells you what happened and why. So please, go to rarepetro.com. Subscribe. We're going to keep you in the know, and we're going to help you grow. But last month's story on the Permian, we talked about how Solaris Water Midstream began operating a new facility to service the growing needs for water processing thanks to increased hydraulic fracturing activity, specifically in New Mexico. December brings even more good news for the company as New Mexico puts a stop to freshwater sourcing from state lands for drilling and completions. This means that projects applying to use fresh groundwater will be denied as an emphasis is being put on recycled water use, which is exactly what Solaris was trying to do. The primary reason for the announcement falls on the shoulders of water scarcity as New Mexico has become a more prominent producer in the last five years. This development has been in the works for a while. I mean, consider that the region of New Mexico hosting the Permian receives 13 inches of rainfall annually. Well, municipalities and farmers are going to file lawsuits to see what they feel is their fair share back from oil and gas. This solution should appease everybody and be a huge benefit to Solaris Water Midstream, allowing them to develop midstream solutions to develop recycled water for whoever demands it. And at first, this doesn't look good. No fresh water sourcing, but Solaris's bread and butter is cleaning water and building infrastructure to get it to everybody. So I think this is going to be hugely beneficial for them. I do too. And the fact that you, I mean, you said it, 13 inches of rainfall annually, that's just, it's not, a lot. <laughs> not enough for the people whose livelihood depends on these freshwater sources. So if oil and gas companies can source their water from recycled water, I love it. I mean, we talked about this last month. I said I loved it then. I love it even more now. <laughs> I'm just, I'm really hoping for, for forward progress for these guys. 
And our final story involves Diamondback Energy for the Permian Basin. So, Diamondback was responsible for one of the largest acquisitions of December as they acquired QEP Resources and a $2 billion stock deal and smaller Guidon Energy for $850 million in mixed cash and stock. Diamondback Energy has focused all their efforts on the Permian, and these deals added 80,000 acres to its portfolio and boost oil and gas output to 340,000 barrels per day. At the time, oil prices were still in the mid to high $40 range, and the newest strain of COVID had just been confirmed in the UK. Shares plummeted over 5% on the announcement, but the stock had experienced significant positive gains in the weeks prior, so this was only a minor hiccup on the upward climb. Regardless, investors may have been surprised as a November earnings announcement revealed plans of using existing free cash flow to pay down the debt. This deal does the exact opposite by diluting existing shareholders and burning through some of that excess cash flow to boost possible production by less than 20%. Things could have been worse like they were for QVP. Originally, the company received an early 2019 offer from hedge fund manager Elliott Management at the tune of $8.75 per share. QEP CEO Tim Colt felt that this was far too low of an offer and held out. They received roughly $2.29 per share from the sale to Diamondback. To add further insult to injury, QEP scrapped a deal in 2018 to sell its Bakken shale fields for $1.7 billion. Big loss for QEP. Glad they were able to recuperate something. But again, it's kind of weird that Diamondback, in one month, did a complete 180 on their plans instead of paying down on debt acquire two companies i mean who knows maybe they see an opportunity that at surface level since we didn't dive into you know their their books Mm -hmm. you know their production assets maybe that they see something that we don't quite see right now and especially you know when they made the deal when oil prices were hovering in the mid 40 dollar range with almost every single analytics company out there predicting that yeah it's probably going to stay there for about a year Mm -hmm. now we're seeing oil in the and you know mid 50 dollar range so who knows, maybe this is actually going to be end up being a good deal for Diamondback. And keeping things in Texas, we move over to our favorite underdog, the Eagleford Shale Play. Woohoo! So things in the Eagleford are looking to probably get a little bit worse before it gets better. Shale players were hurting hard through 2020, especially those in Eagleford, and they attempted to mitigate the bleeding of funds through lowering CapEx for the remainder of the year, which in turn led to huge drops in upstream activity in the Eagleford. Projections into 2021 show that there will likely be a 10% decrease in production year-on-year due to the slump in new well development. A December report from analyst firm Global Data suggests the average production will just be over 1 million barrels per day for 2021, as opposed to the already dwindling 1.13 million observed in 2020. While this may sound gloomy, this report was released when oil futures were averaging only $42 a barrel for the first half of 2021. When looking at natural gas prices, the futures were expected to average nearly $3 per MCF for the first half of 2021, which could spark interest into further Eagleford development. Either way, future projections don't change the fact that 16 major Eagleford operators cut capital spending by 44% for, well, over $3 billion. 2021 seems like the year that will either make or break the Eagleford. It kind of seems like gloom news coming into the end of 2020, but as you hinted at, You know, this is when oil futures were averaging just $42 for the first entire half of 2021. We're in, you know, halfway through the first month of 2021. Granted, that's not even a quarter. That's not first (laughs) halfway through the year. But we've seen a pretty stable oil prices around the $50 range. I don't really foresee that moving way lower into, you know, the $42, $10 less than sitting at right now. But who knows? 
if they do tank back, then maybe these predictions will be right. But hey, you know, three dollars in MCF of gas that looks pretty promising, yeah. and that's looking like where we're headed. And you know, in the mid fifties for oil, who knows? Maybe that's going to spark interest back in the Eagleford, and let's hope twenty twenty one is the year. And as the wind goes sweeping down the plains, we're going to move over to the scoop stack play in Oklahoma. And we've got an acquisition alert. While things have been quiet in Oklahoma, as the local government attempts to discern whether or not Native Americans can tax producers on reservation land, Devon and WPX stole the local spotlight with their newest merger. that left WPX shareholders with 0.5165 shares of Devon common stock for each WPX common stock that they owned. The deal was approved on December 31st and was completed in early January. The entire deal actually only spanned about three months, mainly occupying the fourth quarter of 2020. Dave Hager, Devon Executive Board Chairman, explained the motivation behind the deal, stating, quote, The transformational merger enhances the scale of our operation, builds a dominant position in the Delaware Basin, and accelerates our cash return business model that prioritizes free cash flow generation and the return of capital to shareholders, end quote. This deal would likely not have been finalized if the WPX board was left to their own devices. A lot of pressure came from investors who felt comfortable being merged with Devon, albeit at a much lower takeover premium, than passing up and being consumed by another less capable company. As you were saying earlier, Kevin, I mean, it's a little bit strange that the board has less of a voice than the investors when saying which company they want to merge with, but it definitely makes sense as where is a majority of that capital probably coming from, especially this year. And moving over to our not actually favorite, favorite area, California, where we're going to get heated here. CalGEM announced a new requirement in early December that is to be enforced by the California Board of Professional Engineers, Land Surveyors, and Geologists, or the BPELSG. <laughs> not the best acronym. No, not at all. But this new requirement states that all underground injection control or UIC water disposal projects are required to be stamped by a licensed civil engineer when submitting a proposal to CalGEM. The civil engineer who signs and stamps the report will be responsible for all calculations involving structural and geotechnical engineering plans, along with anything pertaining to water supply, drainage, railroads, highways, tunnels, foundations, sewers, airways, and a long list of many other things. The important thing to take away from this is that the UIC permits have to be stamped by a civil engineer, not the petroleum engineers designing and executing these projects. Some have speculated that this could be a way to further constrict oil and gas operations in the state, but this has not been confirmed by any regulatory officials. Now, at first glance, this makes pretty good sense, right? We're dealing with water projects, civil engineers, environmental engineers deal with that. But then you kind of start to think of the application of it, and that's where things get a little bit nefarious, maybe. Well, okay, so it, it makes sense in the sense of, okay, you know, we're dealing with, you know, a structure here. But it's in underground structure that civil engineers, for the most part, don't deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, you think of a structural engineer, you think of someone who deals with buildings. And then they also have to approve geotechnical engineering plans. That's, again, not a civil-focused individual unless their career has been built up around this. So, absolutely, the individuals that are civil engineers that have de dealt with, you know, underground structural, deep geotechnical issues – they're going to be in very high demand in California. But I kind of agree with you. This seems like a way that they're trying to just 
push individuals out. You know, you don't need a professional engineer that's a petroleum engineer to stamp these plans. No, it's going to be a civil engineer, even though you put it perfectly, Tavis. Petroleum engineers are the ones that are designing these plans, that are executing these plans. And yet, nope, we're going to pass it off to a civil engineer to risk their career for these projects. Who will likely say no. Absolutely. I mean, and then the project dies. Yeah. So uh, best of luck with California, but uh, we'll see where this story takes us. Next up, we've got a little story that I like to call lease sale, more like lease fail. So on the same day that CalGem announced the civil engineering stamp conundrum, the BLM conducted its first federal drilling auction since 2012. Now, we could have a whole podcast over that. Lots of disagreements, lots of people pointing fingers, accusing others of conducting sales illegally. But what you need to know is that really first one in about eight years occurred in December. The auction for drilling rights over 4,100 acres had potential to generate tons of money in any other state, but this auction fell flat on its face by netting just over $46,000. Cha-ching! That might sound like a decent amount of money, but if you consider it, the average price per acre was only $11. Now, if you look at all the auctions that occurred during the Trump administration, well, then you have an average price per acre of $330 as compared to that 11 the highest price parcel was only $27 per acre, or just over 8% of that average. BLM California spokeswoman Serena Baker said, America's free markets will help determine if energy development on public lands is feasible. Regardless of whether or not more is at play than simply depressed oil prices, the BLM still had to deal with the protests within the state. The BLM ignored these protests, saying that the state's argument against the sale had been resolved during the environmental review that concluded last December. The review claimed that opening the land to development presents no health risks. This is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that cha-ching that I said for the 46000 <laughs> that was totally a joke. This is absolutely nothing. I mean, the what they netted over all of these lease sales can barely buy you a car nowadays. I mean, $11 an acre. That's a steal. An absolute steal of federal land. Yeah, but I mean, that to me is the, the cherry on top that paints the picture of the fear that operators have of operating in California. No one wants to touch that land out there. Yeah, it's they're basically saying like, well, I'll, I'll take what will you give it to me for free? No? Okay, here's $10. Here's 10 bucks. Ah, sold. Okay, I, that's enough for me to take the risk. <laughs> yeah, per acre too. I mean, you got to think. That's a huge amount of land for $10. It's it's absolutely obscene and that's why we love California. But let's bounce it from the West Coast back over to the East, where we will talk about that Marcellus region. And first up, talk a little bit about gas in Pennsylvania. So although Pennsylvania is chock full of natural gas produced from the nearby Marcellus, it struggles to quickly deliver it to local markets. December kicked off some heavy winter weather for the New England region, and while states like Massachusetts may be doing okay now, drastic weather changes could leave entire cities without heating. This was observed in the winter of 2017 to 2018, where two feet of snow was dumped and not enough natural gas was stored nearby or available to move at such a high demand. This resulted in a Russian tanker offloading Russian LNG in Boston just to meet the region's energy demand specifically for heating, even though nearby oil-producing states were absolutely swimming in the stuff. The biggest problem lies in insufficient pipeline infrastructure and local storage. Although there was a ripe opportunity to build a pipeline after this incident, Oklahoma-based Williams Companies Incorporated pulled the plug on a new pipeline, saying it would be easier to upgrade existing pipelines and deal with the regulatory framework that could leave the entire project dead in the water. While December introduced a manageable winter in the Northeast, there's still great potential for polar vortexes in 2021. 
To me, this just speaks to the importance of pipeline infrastructure. It's a little bit safer than rail. It allows you to move the gas up to the northeast where they might need it more. Especially when the alternative is consuming energy from Russia, when right next door we have so much gas that we could make use of if we had the correct infrastructure. Yeah, quite literally next door is one of the biggest gas producing regions, if not the biggest it might be the biggest with the associated gas production that came offline from the Permian. Regardless, a massive gas-producing region, quite literally next door, and yet we had to import it from Russia because there was nowhere to transport this. There was no way to get it to consumers, get it to the market, especially in those horrendously cold northeast winters that everyone talks about all the time. And I bet you it was not cheap to get that emergency supply. I can't imagine it was. And now we're going to make John Denver happy and bring it over to West Virginia. <laughs> West Virginia is often overlooked as a natural gas producer in the grand scope of the United States, but it is not to be ignored. The previously known West Virginia Oil and Natural Gas Associate and Independent Oil and Gas Association of West Virginia have decided that their goals of promoting the industry and downstream companies ran in parallel. In December, they came together under the name of Gas and Oil Association of West Virginia, or GO.WV for short. The group will spend the next several months working on the consolidation of the two groups and identifying issues to be addressed through legislative means in 2021. This seems like a quite modern solution, because if you've got two people in the same state going for the same goal, might as well combine your efforts, because at this point we're globalized enough that it's not too hard for them to bring their concerns to Washington or politicians. So I look forward to what this group's going to do for the state. Well, no, absolutely. If you, if you think of the fact that these two mega producers can come together I mean, you kind of think of it in a sense of, okay, now their voice is the voice for West Virginia. If they can take those issues to a federal level, I love the idea. Granted, there might be some kind of issues here with, you know, monopolies and, and things like that. But, you know, in the short term, I do think that this is a strong move with two people that have similar ideals, similar goals in mind, you know, just combine and you know cut costs and, and move forward. Lastly, we'll bring it right back around, back to Pennsylvania, who is not fully convinced of the TCI. And if you don't know what the TCI is, that's okay. I didn't either before doing research for this episode, but it is the Transportation and Climate Initiative, or TCI, and that is an initiative that aims to require hundreds of fuel distributors in participating states to buy permits for the carbon dioxide emitted from the combustion of the fuels that they sell. The number of permits will decline as time progresses, with an overall goal of reducing tailpipe emissions as much as 25%. The initiative was pitched to northeastern and mid-Atlantic states, and the initial deadline was for the end of December. While almost every state did express interest, only a few opted in, of which Pennsylvania was not one. In Pennsylvania, transportation emissions only run third to electricity generation and manufacturing. Governor Wolf expressed that he favored the plan, but did not favor the likely gas price increases that would accompany joining the initiative. Even though Pennsylvania may not be involved in the TCI, Wolf has still made climate change a high priority for the state, and set goals to comply with the 2015 UN Paris Agreement, which the United States are not observing on a federal level. I like this. Governor Wolf doesn't want to pass the cost down to consumers, especially coming off of the year that we just went through. A lot of people probably can't stomach increased costs in every other sector. So while he may not pursue this solution, it sounds like they're open to other things. I love that you included that at the end. They're open-minded, you know. Okay, it's not just a one-opportunity approach. It's, okay... You know, if this isn't going to work, let's find a solution that makes everyone happy, that consumers, producers, everyone, if we can just work together, it's going to 
ensure that we have a industry that will keep jobs and also energy cheap to provide customers. I, like you said, I love that they're open to new ideas. And for the final basin of 2020, we're going to take it up north to the Bakken. On December 22nd, a train transporting oil from the Bakken region to the northwest derailed about 100 miles north of Seattle near the Canadian border. Of the seven derailed cars, five caught fire, but fortunately, officials were able to control the situation and prevent any injuries. While this could have been a simple accident, two people were arrested near the site about a month ago for fixing shunts to the track. Shunts are simply wires strung across the track that mimic the electrical signal of a train, which can cause automatic braking and disable crossing guards for through traffic. The two arrested were charged with terrorism because it was determined that the motives revolved around the opposition to natural gas pipelines across British Columbia into Washington state. This is only one of dozens of cases that have occurred in 2020, as the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force has identified an anarchist website where people had earlier posted responsibility. The anti-gas sentiment is strong in these regions, as Washington state is home to five oil refineries. Now, this just blows my mind. Okay, maybe this case was not. Maybe it was a simple accident. But dozens, dozens of occurrences previously in the year where people are potentially hurting other people, preventing cross guards from falling and smashing cars and derailing trains. That's, I understand you disagree, but I think there's a better way to get the point across. Yeah, it's, it, to me, it's absolutely unacceptable. You're putting other people in harm's way to try and get your point across. I get that people feel strongly about oil and gas. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with having opinions. But taking those opinions to the extent that you're going to harm others, that's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, think about what just happened here in Colorado a couple weeks ago up in Aspen where there were individuals that shot up a pipeline and it left, what was it, 38,000 people without heating? Yeah, 3,500 businesses, homes, buildings like that with more than one person in them. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate because it's the winter months in Aspen. It was sub-zero for the entire week where they didn't have natural gas to heat their homes, heat their businesses. That had the potential to put people out of business, put people, you know... In harm's way. <laughs> absolutely. And so just things like this to me just get me get me fired up, and, and that's why I'm a big supporter of oil and gas. And for the last story in the last basin, North Dakota State Mineral Resource Director Lynn Helms put it succinctly when he said, quote, all in all, it was a pretty terrible year for oil and gas, end quote. Even so, he followed up with the fact that this was not the worst downturn he had experienced, but two outranked it. The first was the bust in 2000 brought on by overproduction and a rather poor economy, and the second was the oil embargo from the 80s. Either way, Helms predicts that things will get better no sooner than a year from now. These statements were released when oil was at $48 a barrel, so hopefully this accelerates the timeline. As it stands, North Dakota continues to work through a new program of water acquisition and disposal that it funded with CARES Act money before the end of the year. It also plans to use some extra stimulus money to provide local jobs in plugging and abandoning. Like many states also dependent on oil and gas revenues, North Dakota continues to find work to stay afloat and is excited for better days. And I wanted to include this as the last basin breakdown story of 2020 because, yeah, a pretty terrible year for oil and gas, but it is important to know that, well, it looks like we're starting to come out of it, and it's not as bad as it has been in the past. So if anything, this gives me hope for a better year, especially considering prices were only in the 40s a couple weeks ago. I think things are looking up. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Tavis. I mean, it, it was a great quote. All in all, it was a pretty terrible year for <laughs> oil and gas. I, yes, that's absolutely the sentiment we have, the sentiment we've tried to give you um, throughout these basin breakdowns, obviously try and find some some good positive news, but sometimes there's just 
not a whole lot out there, but, and I love the way that this concluded. They're trying to find a way to stay afloat and, and look forward into 2021. You know, 2020 is in the rearview mirror. Let's do our best to just look forward, hope for better days in the future. But that is the end of a full year. Rip Petro's first full actual year of podcast. That is, we have a few segments that we recorded back in December and earlier months coming up, but I think that sums up all the news that we had to deliver to you. So thanks for hanging out with us. Kevin and I appreciate it. Yeah, fun. It, 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 it's been a fun year, and we, we look forward to 2021 with you guys. Till we see you next time. Take care, everybody.